good morning, one and all. My name's Adrian. If you don't know me, I'll be taking us through this next part of our gathering. Uh, one of the attributes that we're really living with as a church is what does it really mean to build home together? Uh, and we've been exploring over the uh, last couple of months through the first three chapters of Genesis of what did God originally create home to be for us as humanity? There's so many different lenses that you can look at this amazing story of Genesis, but we want to say, actually, what, what do we discover about the attributes of home uh, through these three chapters? And we've been doing that week on, week out, and today is the penultimate week of the series, so we'll get to the last one next week. But before we get there, I wanted to just start by telling a bit about my week. Uh, last week, I got the privilege of uh, spending Wednesday in Milton Keynes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Milton Keynes. It's a weird place, a weird place that I, I'm sure makes some sense but I just don't get it. I, I know, understand it's on some sort of grid system, but it just doesn't work for me. Uh, and so I was there and was there to kind of gather with some friends uh, who are involved in the family of churches we're part of uh, called Catalyst. And at the end of the day, uh, I was getting my train back and I uh, thought I'd grab a lift with a friend in a taxi. And so we ordered our taxi uh, and got in. So it's me and my friend Matt. And we're in this taxi and I always find with taxi drivers, you know very quickly uh, kind of what kind of taxi driver there are. And I think there's two types of taxi driver. There's the taxi driver that you start, and you say, hi, how's your day going? And they go, fine. And you know at that point, what they're looking for is a cocoon of silence and tranquility. That's what they're offering you. You come into my car, and I'm going to offer you silence and tranquility. We don't need to be friends. We're just going to be okay together. Now, this guy wasn't like that. I get into the car and say, How's your day going? My day's great. What about yours? So start talking, yeah, I've had a good day. How long have you been doing this? Oh, I've been doing this for eight months. Oh, how come eight months? Oh, because I moved to Milton Keynes eight months ago. Oh, did you move with your family? Yes, I did move with my family. Have you got children? Yes, I do have children. I have three children. And, and he said, oh, what age are they? I said, oh, well, my children are 17, just, 50, nearly, and uh, 12. No, he is 15. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm showing you modeling in the car how it goes. No, no yes, he is 15. Um, he then looks at me and he says, you don't look old enough to have children that age. I thought, <laughs> oh, I said, you're the first person ever to say that to me. People always think I'm 10 years older than I truly am. And he says, wow, you don't look old enough. Like, how long have you been married? So, said, well, I got married really young. And we've been married for quite a long time. And then he turns to me and says, oh, so did you cheat on your wife? I said, sorry. <laughs> do, I, do I what? Do you cheat on your wife? No, no, I don't cheat on my wife. Why don't you cheat on your wife? If you've been married for that long, surely you understand that you've got to get out there and you can't just be one person. Now, at this point, you've got to understand, this is like literally three minutes into the taxi journey. <laughs> I don't think I wasn't expecting this. As I'm there and we're, we're in there, but the guy who's I'm with in the taxi at the back has gone really quiet. He's not saying anything. <laughs> He's just smiling. I think, oh, man. And so I go, well, no, no I, I don't cheat on my wife. And he goes, I don't understand. Why would you not do that? And at this point, we're, we're on first name terms, you know, three minutes in. And he goes, Adrian, I don't understand why you don't do that. I said, well, well because I, I love God. 
And as far as I understand it, God wants the best for me. And one of those things he's done is said, actually, the parameters of living in my best is to be committed and loving to the wife that I've got. And that's enough. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But you could die tomorrow and you've got to live for today. You've got to live for what you need. And then he goes on to tell me about his many exploits of how he lives this way. And we're kind of getting nearer the train station. I'm thinking, I don't know what to do here. Like, we are in such a different zone. And I'm turning to him and saying, look, I can understand, like, you're saying this, but do you not understand that it's destructive? Like, how do you think your wife would feel about this? And he goes, well, what she doesn't know or doesn't see doesn't hurt her. So I then say, what if your wife did this? Well, if I don't see it and I don't know it, it's okay. Oh, yeah, but what if you did see it and you did know it? Oh, I'd kill them. Yeah, but this isn't surely a way to live. This is destructive. Oh, no, I think this is okay. And I, I encourage you, Adrian, why don't you get out there? I'm thinking, like, where do we go? This At this point, my friend in the back, who's been silent, says, hey, how can we pray for you? I'm thinking, man, that's a great line. <laughs> like, I'd say, if you never know what to do, like, there was no way this was ever going to land anywhere. How can I pray for you is a good line. And so he goes, well, you could pray for me for wisdom and discernment. At that point, in chorus, we both go, you really need wisdom <laughs> and discernment. And as I got out of the taxi, we were praying, and I continued to pray for him, or for him to know wisdom and discernment, because I just thought, like, if you're there and you feel that able to talk at such a quick moment about such a thing that we can think kind of nervously, like, this doesn't seem okay, it's when you think, man, this isn't okay. But somewhere along the line, he thinks it is. And as I got out of the taxi, it just made me think, man, the world we live in is broken. It just isn't as it was meant to be. And it's that that we get to look at today. You see, in looking at the wonder of Genesis 1 and 2, we know we've lived with this shadow of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 comes, and it's this shadow that we're going to look at today, where it just says, hey, what was so good, what God declared was very good, breaks. Breaks as humanity decide maybe there's a different way. But what I want us to see is that it isn't the end of the story. I want us to understand that we need to see that this is something that God then restores and redeems. That as we understand that, yes, the world is broken, it then causes us to understand that we then get to build a home for the broken. Because the other thing that happened in that taxi journey is as we got out of the car, as we said, hey, the building that you picked us up from is a church building. And we want you to know, as we pray for you, that you are always welcome there. Because who we are is to always be a home for the broken. So with that all in mind, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And we're going to need to hang in there as we do it. For some of us, we think, man, I've read this before. But the, the danger is that we kind of just gloss over it and think, oh, yeah, yeah, Genesis 3, it all goes wrong. And I want us to feel the pain of it. That's hard, isn't it? Like a Sunday, we're like, man, wasn't it good to be in God's presence? And now you're saying, now feel the pain? I think sometimes it's good to just realize this isn't as it's meant to be. 
And so as I read this out, what I'd encourage you to do, maybe you'll read it with me by looking at the screen. Maybe close your eyes, not as a way to go to sleep, but as a way just to hear the words afresh. See, this is the moment where God has declared this creation, this home is very good, that everything we looked at last week where it said that humanity, male and female, revealing who God is, honoring him, revealing him, lived with no shame, knew nothing other than they were worth everything. They were loved. And then we pick up. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he has been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
I can't tell you a story that suddenly makes this moment lighter. It just is what it is. And sometimes we have to feel the uncomfortable nature of the reality that we live in. There was this hole, and it was good. And it broke. And if we don't read this and don't feel that sense of grieving over what has been lost, what we're going to discover is our hearts are beginning to harden to the reality that we're living in. We have to read this and think, this isn't okay. This isn't right. This isn't how it should be. But it is the reality that we live in. It isn't the end of the story, which we're going to go on to see, but it is a reality we live in because we live in a home that is broken. See, that home that's broken, we discover in Genesis 3, 5, 6, happens because humanity decides something and they forget something. Humanity decides that maybe God is withholding something good from them. See, God had declared that the whole of creation was very good. I'd said to humanity, which is revealed, male and female, that they were then to enjoy everything that he'd been created. He was not withholding anything from them. But somewhere along the line, they thought, no, maybe he is withholding something good from us. Maybe that tree, which even that they forget. Like God had said at the very center of this garden, there were two trees. A tree that would cause there to be life and life eternal and a tree that was there that was the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, don't eat of that tree of good and evil. He didn't ever say don't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. And of this one, he said, you can eat of that tree. But somewhere along the line, they twisted it and said, no, maybe God isn't as good as his word. Maybe God's withholding something from us. And they decided, hey, let's go after it because when we look at it, it looks so good. It wasn't just that, it's that they'd also forgotten something. You know, there was a tantalizing moment of, hey, if we take of that tree's fruit, if we take of that the knowledge of good and evil, hey, what are we promised? We're going to be like God. They'd forgotten they already were. God had created humanity to be the bearers of his image, to be the ones that revealed the wonder of who God is throughout the whole of his creation. And somewhere they forgot. They forgot who they're truly meant to be. They thought God isn't, is withholding some good for us, and we've forgotten who we're meant to be. And the thing is, we can look and say, man, why did they do that? But actually, we don't have to go far to realize that it's there within each of us. Within each of us is that moment of actually saying, maybe God is withholding something good. Maybe that thing that I really want. That's what's going to really satisfy me. That, that actually is better than God. Somewhere along the line, we forget that we are humans, and as humans, we're made in God's image. And we forget that, and we think, no, no, I'm going to be like God through finding my worth in something else other than God. Every single one of us, I have found myself in those two dilemmas. Maybe you've come this morning and say, hey, I'm just trying to figure this stuff out, and you're starting pretty heavy. Well, maybe it's because the heaviness is, brings reality. What's the point of talking anything but? As we find ourselves in that predicament that, yeah, there is a broken home. This home that's broken is there because we've forgotten who we're meant to be. And we thought that God was withholding something good 
But the thing is, the home that's broken then causes this broken home that is characterized as we see God say, this is now how this home that I've created is going to pan out. So you find that suddenly it's about separation. The where it was a home that was created for relationship, relationship with God, relationship between humanity on equal footing, relationship with the whole of creation to be its carers and caretakers. But suddenly it breaks and suddenly it's about separation, a separation to God of the intimacy that had been known suddenly being taken away of separation from one another, of that sense of, hey, we're in this together to reveal humanity, to then become this like battle of the sexes. Of no, my value is found not together, but separate. Then find this separation that comes with the whole of creation. Actually, rather than creation be something that we try to take care of, it's actually working against us. And then I'd also say there's this other separation, a separation within ourselves. Actually, whatever we give ourselves to is never quite enough. And the thing is that characterization, those attributes of what this broken home looks like, we can, to be honest, not just look at Genesis 3, we can just look at the world around us. Just look at the world around us. Just look at the world around us of this last week. And you see, man, this is what we're looking at. The fact that someone could think it was okay to arm themselves and go into a house of prayer and kill people as they pray is a marker of a broken home in the broken world that we live in. Because somewhere along the line, there's a separation that's gone on that says, actually, my worth is because of the color of my skin and the faith that I protest, and it's against that one. And therefore, my value is going to be found in me diminishing what goes on there. We can see it in the world around us by the fact that even in this city, this last week, so I remember, just this week, let's not look bigger than that. We can do, and it gets worse. But it's just this, this week. So this last week, the world around us, shootings in New Zealand. This city, two young men die as someone just drives into them and then drives away. You can look at it in terms of the fact that it is amazing that we get to do and prepare these bags for mums who are struggling to make ends meet. But then you have to think, but this shouldn't be like that, should it? Surely this is a marker of a broken home where people can't even afford just the basics of what it looks like just to care for their kids. But it isn't just like the broken home that we see around us, it's also the broken home that we see within us. So I said, I think all of us know what it is to know that deep sense of separation. Separation from one another. Separation from God. Separation from ourselves. If whatever we give ourselves to, it doesn't quite, isn't quite enough. A separation from creation. I've just feeling like, man, it just feels like we're just here to take whatever we can. You know, everything that Glenn looked at a few weeks ago, we just think, man, how much conviction have I had over the last three weeks of the amount of plastic I'm using or uh, the way that I leave all my lights on or stuff like that. And thinking, man, because I decide I want that, it then costs that. But the thing with broken 
is we live in a day and age where broken means replace. Like, that's what we live with. We think, like, broken means, like, I had this thing, it's now broken, so I bin it and I replace it. But God's not like us. Because for God, when he sees something broken, he doesn't see replace, he sees restoration. And see, the amazing story of the whole of the Bible, and there's so many different lenses that you can look at it, but one of those lenses you can look at the whole of the story of the Bible is a story not of God replacing, but of God restoring. It's a restoration project. A restoration project from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. It's there. Of God's desire, design to restore everything that was very good in order that it would be very good. And see, his chief aim, his chief one who would come to restore, we see promised in Genesis 3. The only reason we know it is because we're those that now know who Jesus is. But it's there. And it's this moment where suddenly it's there within all that God says are the consequences of this brokenness of the world, this brokenness of the home. And so we find that the restoration is promised, the restoration of home. Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head. And it's this weird moment, this weird moment of a snake. What is the snake? And to be honest, there's not lots of answers there. There's just these masks of one who we're going to see that starts to be revealed as the story continues, who is the devil who's there to usurp God of his authority. What's promised there is, hey, let's not focus on the snake Let's focus on this seed, this seed of the woman, one who will be born of her who will crush the snake's head. That's the one you're to look out for. It's like this sudden moment of like, well, what on earth is that going to look like? The beauty is we know the end of the story. What it looks like is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's promised to come restore all that was broken. So we find that he restores it through his life. You see it in his testing. That when Jesus, in the same way as Adam and Eve were in their garden, tested by the enemy, he comes along and says, is God withholding something good from you? I can give you it. Jesus is tested. And the enemy comes and says, hey, isn't God withholding something good from you? I can give you it. And what do we discover about Jesus? He says, oh no, God isn't withholding anything good from me. I know the Father, and he is revealing and giving me everything that I need. He's enough. You then find it in another garden. So the garden, the first one that he's in, is in the wilderness. As an aside, you find that there's the wild beasts. We could go into that, we're not going to today. We've got the testing of Jesus in his life. We've then got the garden of Gethsemane, another garden. Where again, Jesus is there and says, God, I trust you that you're not withholding anything from me. Therefore, I offer everything of me to you, not my will, but yours. We find it not just through his life, it's also through his death. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 reveals just the wonder of what Jesus does on a tree. That he nails on it everything wrong that we have done and deals with it. He ends the powers and principalities 
and all of their schemes to cause evil to run riot in the world. In order to what? Well, as my good friend Mike Blaber pointed to me this week, is in order that we get to that moment of realizing that that tree at the beginning that became our curse of knowledge and evil would then be redeemed through a different tree where Jesus would take on himself the evil that we do, the wrong that we've done, in order to redeem us, in order to cause us to know that now we could know a different hope, that he wouldn't withhold anything of himself, but would our brother offer everything of himself in order that we could be characterized by his goodness. So the tree wouldn't be something we realize that we've been hindered by, but rather a tree would be something that we discover we've been liberated by. It isn't just through his death, it's also through his resurrection. Those amazing words in John 20, verse 19, where Jesus appears to his friends for the first time after he's resurrected in a closed room. And he, in that moment, reveals the wonder of everything that he has done through his life, death, and resurrection. And he summarizes it and just says, peace. Peace. That word shalom. Wholeness. Wholeness is now on offer. Why? Because he's the restorer. He's the restorer of what was broken. And therefore, what was broken is now being made whole. So we can discover that wholeness is a call to be welcomed home for anyone and everyone who receives him. A wholeness of relationship instead of separation. A relationship of knowing God and God knowing us and fully loving and accepting us. And in that, it causing us to then know no longer a separation within ourselves as we realize that our value and identity isn't found in what we do or the attempts we make, but rather is found in who he is. It causes us to realize that we can then relate together. And we're not in competition, we're not in comparison. We're equally those now that are restored to what we were always meant to be, the image bearers of God, those who are there to honor and reveal him. And call others in to say, hey, do you realize how wonderful and beautiful you are? Come and discover again the image that you were made to reflect. And then it's with creation that we suddenly realize, man, we're here to do this thing good, not to take what we can from it. There's a wholeness in terms of rest rather than restlessness. That restlessness that causes us to think, actually, am I ever going to be good enough? Will I ever belong? We saw that in the garden. They're, they're cast out of where they were. I mean, they truly know home. But suddenly, you know, I know what you get to know through Jesus is you belong. You're home. Your efforts aren't, on what's, aren't being what's judged here. You're declared good enough. Rest. And then it's life instead of death. That rather than that desire that design from God is saying, actually, now, now you're going to, that's it, it's done. You cannot any longer eat from that tree that offers eternal life. Now you get to know Jesus, who is the source of all life and life eternal. If you've never known a welcome from Jesus to home, today is that moment. Today is a moment where you can say, man, I want this. I want to be welcomed into that sort of home, a home that is characterized by relationship, rest, and life. That's what's on offer. Maybe we've lost sight of it, and for us, we've got to say, hey, 
I need to know that home again. I need to remember, this is the home that I now belong to. But can I say that it then pushes us to then say, how do we then live in light of this home? See, if this is the home that we've been welcomed into, then we need to understand that the home that we build together is a home of the broken. It's a home of the broken in terms of this, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, the reality is this. As we seek to live in the wonder and goodness of how Jesus is restoring us into the home and the people that are truly meant to be, it's exactly that. It's a restoration project. It isn't just the finished article. Which means that we get to live knowing that we're like jars. Jars that sometimes clunk, but are fragile, but have this immense treasure inside. And therefore, we don't have to present ourselves as we've got this sorted. We are the finished article. Rather, we present ourselves saying, hey, I have such treasure in the wonder of what Jesus has done. And I now need to know that I'm now in a project of restoration where what was broken is being restored. Therefore, I get to live in light of that. I don't get to pretend I'm not. I listened this last week to, in Australia, there's the first ever piano that landed in Australia. I think it didn't land, it went by ship, actually. Um, It went by ship into Australia, and it's several hundred years old. But when you look at it, and it is in a museum, it's seen as priceless. It looks amazing, given its age. But if you play it, it is awful. It's an utter piece of rubbish. It doesn't suit what it was created to be. And so what's being done at the moment is being flown back to this country in order that a specialist in Bath can be involved in restoring that piano in order that it can be what it was always meant to be, something to be played. And their desire and design to do that is because they want it to be heard in 250 years' time, in 500 years' time. One person said, in a 1,000 years' time. I think, wow, that's a big goal. But the thing is, it's going to take 10 months for that piano to be restored. It's going to cost loads of money. See, somewhere someone had to say, this piano looks good, but it isn't fit for purpose. It needs to be properly restored. It will cost, and it will take time, but it's worth it for what we get to see at the end and get to hear. And if that's a piano, how much more you? How much more me? That God doesn't want to leave us in a place where we kind of look okay on the outside, but actually if someone was to come and truly look inside and get to hear what's going on, it would just sound like, man, that's not fit for purpose. Now, God wants to restore us, and he's done it at a very high cost, his son, in order that you and I would be made to be who we're truly meant to be, his image bearers. Therefore, let's not pretend We are restored. I'm not. I'm a restoration project, and I'm very, very proud to say it. 
Hang around me for a week and you realize how much of a restoration project I am. But I wonder whether part of being a home for the broken or of the broken is that we need to be those that live saying, hey, who we are is we're restoration projects. I wonder how liberating that becomes, where suddenly we think, man, it isn't me pretending to be something. Actually, it's just who I am. I'm not dwelling in it. I'm not saying, oh, I'm a restoration project, therefore I'm just going to stay in this place. I'm going to keep doing stuff that breaks me further. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I said, no, we give ourselves to saying, Jesus, would you come and cause the wonder of the wholeness that you are on offering to me to shape every facet of my life. And I thank you, God, that I've got the whole of this life to live more in light of the restoration you're doing. And we are a restoration project. I'm a restoration project. You're a restoration project. We're all restoration projects. But it not only changes us being a home of the broken, it also means we become a home for the broken. We're in a world that is broken. And rather than them thinking that this is a home where you only get to be when you've got it right, we need to get the, the message out, come and be around this home because you are welcome. I took delivery of a TV this week. Whatever, 50 inches I think it is. It's been massive. Thing is, if I took it, and I just threw it, sorry about the baby, whoops, um, was just hit Peter, didn't hit the baby. <laughs> Illustrates the point, as you'll see. Some of you are thinking, you're surely not going to give away a TV. Some of you are thinking, man, it's good enough to recommend, it's good enough to give away. Maybe they're going to give away a 50-inch TV today. <laughs> then you suddenly thought, he's throwing the TV. Surely there's not a TV in there. I don't know. It's a pretty flimsy TV. It's quite light. <laughs> if I told you there was a TV in there, do you think that would be a good use of our funds? Would you question whether I'm treating with value that TV? That I, how I should. You know, let's not go on to the baby and should I have thrown a box at a baby. That's, that's a given, right? I shouldn't have thrown a box at a baby. But you know where I'm going. Who cares less about a TV? I promise you, in, that, in five years' time, that TV will be outdated and no one will think anything of it. We're not talking about TVs. We're talking about men and women People who are created in God's image. And we are called to welcome them with the value and dignity that they deserve. Let's never be those that receive people and toss them around like a TV in a box. Let's see them for who they are, broken, in need of wholeness, in need of restoration just like you and just like me. And let's give ourselves to inviting many in to know what we've known. Knowing they'll be broken, but knowing they can know wholeness. And let's be those that then pray. 
If we weren't on our knees this week, I don't know what you did. When I heard that news from New Zealand, it broke me. I thought, this, what is going on? And increasingly, I look at the world around and think, what is going on? And it causes me to pray and say, God, have mercy. This is broken, and Jesus, we need your wholeness to be revealed in this city, this nation, and the nations. It must turn us to pray. Man, it's feeling heavy, isn't it? It is. It is. But can we give ourselves to building a home for the broken? Can we give ourselves to building a home for the broken? Can I just give us three things to consider? And then we're going to end in a slightly different way. Can I ask you, have you received the welcome home from Jesus? Like if you've never received that welcome home, or maybe you've lost sight of it, can I encourage you? In a few minutes, can you come and talk to me? Because I'd just really love to talk to you about it. Secondly, how do you need to live more defined by the wholeness Jesus offers? Every single one of us, it's a given, we're restoration projects. How are we needing restoration at the moment? How will you help build a home where all know they are welcome? What are you going to do? I know what I'm going to do to make sure I'm not throwing TVs around, especially not at babies. What are you going to do to help do that as well? Ensure we build a home where everyone knows they're welcome.